following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them with any help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told of me in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Uh, We've been journeying through Mark's gospel as a church ever since our birth in February of 2022. And just by way of reminder, uh, the reason we call it Mark's gospel is because that's the author. Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples, actually, but he was a close friend and associate of Peter's. And so in many ways, what we have here in the gospel of Mark is the memoirs of Peter. Mark is writing in the middle of the first century. This is the 50s AD, only a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's reporting real historical events, but it's history with a theological edge. Real, accurate history with a theological edge. See, the Gospel of Mark is sort of like a biography of Jesus, but it's Also, unlike any biography you've ever read, because 60% of it covers the span of roughly 33 years, and the final 40% covers the span of a single week. But that's because it's the most significant week in human history. Chapter 14, which we come to this morning, is the longest chapter the longest chapter in the gospel according to Mark. Jesus only has a few days, a few hours left to live. And so everything that's happening at this point is happening under the looming shadow of the cross. The greatest tragedy in all the world is slowly unfolding. And that's the backdrop. That's the backdrop we come to this morning, this brooding, scheming darkness of evil powers and evil men. And yet, as we'll see this morning, even against that dark backdrop, there is a flash of light as a woman walks into the foreground of the story. A woman who comes to Jesus and unlike everyone else around her, recognizes his real value. Here's what I think is the main idea of the passage, uh, Mark 14, 1 to 11, and therefore the main idea of this message. Jesus is the most valuable treasure in the universe. 
treat him accordingly. I think it's that simple. Jesus is the most valuable treasure in the universe. Treat him accordingly. We'll think about this in in two simple points, the first of which, heads up, is much longer than the the second. So point one is going to cover verses one to nine. Point one, poured out, and point two, paid off. Poured out, verses one to nine, paid off, verses 10 and 11. First, poured out. Look there at, at verse one. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or or the people may riot. So if you've been journeying with us through Mark's gospel, you know well by this point who these people are. They're not the good guys. The, The chief priests control the temple. The teachers of the law control the synagogues. Together, they form the religious establishment that is intent on eliminating this threat from Nazareth. But as you can see, they are facing a dilemma here. Jerusalem is swelling with people. It's the most crowded week of the year because it's Passover, which is the most important feast on the Jewish calendar. This annual reunion has brought Jews from all over the known world, which means that the faces in the crowd include Galileans from up north who are very familiar with Jesus and are fans of his. And so these religious leaders are stuck They're desperate to get rid of this man once and for all. But it's not a convenient time. This is what I meant when I said there's this brooding, scheming darkness. These men are bloodthirsty. Mark's background music is ominous. But then his camera pans to a very different scene. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Now, just just pause there. Bethany is a village two miles outside of Jerusalem, and it served as Jesus's base camp during uh, his time over the course of this week. So at the beginning of chapter 11, he's in Bethany right before he rides into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, and that's where he's been residing. And Mark brings us inside a home in this village to a dinner party hosted by Simon the leper. Now, we don't know exactly who this is, but he was most likely one of the many lepers Jesus had healed who is now following him. And just by the way, if if you're skeptical about the historical reliability of the Gospels, this could be true if you're not a Christian. This could even be true if you are a Christian and you struggle sometimes with doubts. You should just be aware of the fact that there is inconvenient specificity in the reporting if it's not true. He could have just said, once upon a time, Jesus found himself at a dinner party. But no, he says, while he was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. In other words, If you want to know more, if you want to check what I'm saying for yourself, feel free to go to Bethany and track down Simon the leper and ask. 
This is an ancient way of, of naming your sources, planting names. And it, it happens all the time in the Gospels if you have eyes to see it. Uh, we're going to see it actually in chapter 15, uh, where, when Simon of Cyrene is asked to carry the cross. And there's this passing comment, Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander. As if that matters, as if we need to know that, as if that bears on the story at all, as if Rufus and Alexander show up anywhere else in the Bible, but they were almost certainly, by the time of Mark's writing, followers of Jesus. And Mark was saying, those are my sources. Their dad carried his cross. Go talk to them. And so we've entered this specific home, and as we're watching Jesus relax and enjoy the company of his friends, which is pretty amazing in itself with death approaching, here's what we see, middle of verse 3. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Nard was very expensive because it, it didn't come from that region of the world in the Middle East. It, it was ext- it extracted from a root, a rare herb way off in India. And this was a kind of fragrant oil that often would have been not so much one person's you know, personal possession, but something like a family heirloom passed down through generations. And so what she has just done to show honor to Jesus is downright shocking. It certainly supersedes anything the 12 disciples have done, which may explain the response in verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. This is not a picture of mild annoyance. The folks around this table are aghast. They're furious. That's why Mark uses descriptive words like indignantly and harshly. What did she just do? A whole year's salary was in that bottle, and now it's just gone. Dripping from his clothes, soaking into his skin. What a waste. Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 6. You guys are absolutely right. Ma'am, I, I appreciate the gesture. I really do, but clearly there's been some kind of misunderstanding about who I am. No, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. He rushes to her defense. No, 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 you all have it wrong. You, you've just witnessed something that, yes, was shocking, but guess what else it was? Appropriate, fitting, not wasteful, beautiful. It may feel super pious to object and say, oh, that money could have been given to the poor, but you're missing the point. Verse seven, the poor you'll always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you won't always have me. By the way, if you ever hear, and you may, I've heard it from time to time, uh, if not stated explicitly, at least implied, if you ever hear a Christian or a Christian organization claim that we can eradicate poverty in this life, gently direct them to this verse. Jesus explicitly says, the poor you will always have with you. 
always. He never envisioned a point in the future, again, in this life, when poverty would be a thing of the past. And yet that's not really what he's talking about. Like I just say that as a sort of parenthetical, like, by the way, if you ever find yourself in a... No, that's not actually what he's getting at with this comment. The takeaway is not, hey, guys, uh, poor people are always going to be kind of just randomly around, so don't worry about them. No, the point is, poor people are always going to be around you, my disciples, precisely because you're caring for them. That's why you'll always have the poor with you, because they'll be drawn to you and you to them. Again, that's not the main point of what he's saying. We're we're getting there. But the implication is not, there are just random poor people everywhere. No, it's because you're my followers, you will always have the poor among you because you'll always be doing ministry among them. But he says, and here's his point, what you won't always have near you is me. We've heard staggering claim after staggering claim after staggering claim from the lips of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. And this is just the latest one. I mean, do you hear what he's saying in verse 7? He's not denying the poor matter again. You know, he, read the rest of the Gospels. In fact, what did he tell the, the rich young man to do as we saw a few chapters ago? Sell everything you have and give it to whom? The poor. And of course, in saying stuff like this, he's not just standing in line with Hebrew scriptures, which he is. He's demonstrating the very heart of God. I'm just going to read you the briefest sampling. This was a lot longer, uh, but I I just shortened it to like six verses. You're not going to turn there. You're just going to listen. I just want to give you a little taste for the witness of the Hebrew scriptures when it comes to God's heart and concern for the poor. Again, not because that's the main point of what Jesus is saying, but we have to have it ringing in our ears if we are going to understand what he is saying. 1 Samuel 2 God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Psalm 12, because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. Psalm 140, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. Proverbs 17, whoever mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Proverbs 19, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he'll reward them for what they've done. Now again, why did I read all those to you? Because I want all of it ringing in your ears when you hear Jesus say, you'll always be ministering to the poor, but your focus right now needs to be on me. Who does he think he is? In light of the prophetic witness of the Old Testament, In light of God's clear concern for the poor, who does he think he is to say, I am above everyone? What kind of Jewish rabbi would dare talk like this? Answer, either one who is deluded with self-importance or one who is himself worth more than all the treasures in the earth. 
See, the reason the disciples can't see the beauty of this woman's deed, the reason they can't see it is because they don't yet see the value of their master. But she did. (laughs) She doesn't just pour out a precious possession. She pours out her very heart. She doesn't hold anything back, and they can't stand it. And remember who the they is. These are not Pharisees. These are not Herodians. These are not Sadducees. These are not opponents of Jesus. These are his closest followers. In many ways, these guys love him. And yet their hearts recoil. Their hearts recoil at someone who's willing to demonstrate extravagant devotion. One of the lessons of this story is that it is just not possible to give Jesus too much of yourself. It is not possible to give him too much of yourself. You will never pour out too much in devotion to him. And the irony is that people are actually fine with you pouring yourself out completely for other things. People are fine with you being totally devoted, obsessed with other things. The world is fine with extravagance in other areas. As one person pointed out, the world has no problem with too much wealth or too much influence or too much power or too much sex or too much stuff, but people do have a problem with too much religion. Oh, you can be religious in moderation. Just, just please don't go overboard. Please don't act like this woman. Don't act like Jesus is, is worth that kind of sacrifice. Yes, give him something. He's a great guy. He said a lot of great things. He's respectable. Give him something, but just chill out a little bit. Don't give him everything. Perhaps you've experienced this kind of sentiment from people you love. Friends or family members who are fine with you being a Christian so long as it doesn't happen to make them uncomfortable. Sure, believe in Jesus. Worship him on Sundays. I'm totally fine with that. Pray all you want. But could you just stop taking him so seriously? I recently asked a, an Uber driver if, if he was a person of faith. He said, yes. I said, do you go to church? He said, no. And when I drew him out, he made a, a few uh, typical excuses, but then launched into just kind of complaining about his adult daughter and son-in-law who have become, in his words, fanatical about their Christian faith. Now, I don't know his daughter and son-in-law, there's always the chance that they've gotten caught up in some cult and that they are the wrong kind of fanatics. But I'm guessing that it's more likely they're just behaving like normal Christians. But he wants them to behave like fake Christians. And it's made him uncomfortable. See, one of the takeaways of this passage is that your devotion to Jesus will and frankly should make some people uncomfortable. No, this is not a license to be obnoxious or to be hyper-pious like the Pharisees and showy in the way you flaunt your religiosity. No, 
But it does mean that if you rightly appraise Jesus Christ, which is a perfect verb for this passage, if you rightly appraise Jesus, that is you calculate his value and live accordingly, then you will absolutely be the object of some eye rolls. You will absolutely be the object of some snide comments, some dismissive, snickering remarks, and not just from non-Christians, but also from professing Christians who feel uneasy in the presence of someone who lives as if what they believe is actually true. One other thing to notice here in in Jesus' statement, the, the poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me, you won't always have me, is that it's similar to something he's already said in Mark's gospel a long time ago. Way back in chapter two, he was asked, if you remember, hey, John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees' disciples are fasting. Why aren't yours, Jesus? And do you remember how he responded? He gave a little illustration, an analogy. He, he said that Mark 2, 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. In other words, fasting is fine. Fasting is good, but you aren't at a fast. You're at a feast. You're at a wedding party. The bridegroom of Israel is here and he won't be much longer. And it's the same exact idea here in Mark 14. This woman, unlike everyone else at the table, is clued in to what time it is. And she's behaving accordingly. In the words of one old preacher, her act isn't just unique in its thoughtfulness and regal in its lavishness. It's also marvelous in its timeliness. Verse 8, Jesus continues, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. It's likely she intended this act. I mean, we we don't know everything going on in her mind. It's possible she was acting kind of better than she knew. And yet, clearly, she was wanting to demonstrate her lavish love and affection for Jesus and probably wanting to symbolically communicate something like an anointing for kingship. Uh, uh, Hey, you are the promised one. You are the long-awaited Messiah. And Jesus says yes, and what she recognizes is not just that that's my identity, but that also it comes with a mission that the rest of you don't understand. My time is short because I am headed for a grave. And sure enough, in two days, just two days, uh, a few months from now, because of Mark's speed of reporting at this point, but in just two days, When his corpse is taken from the cross, he will be buried in haste, which means that he actually won't be anointed with spices in the typical Jewish fashion, which means this is the only anointing for burial he's going to receive. Her act meant more to Jesus than she could have ever imagined. I just love to think about that. She obviously was wanting to please him to honor him, to to bring a smile to his face. And yet she was doing so much more than she even realized. Her act meant so much more to him than she could have possibly known. 
In fact, it meant so much to him that he resolved to never let the world forget. To never let the world forget what his dinner guests had just seen. Verse 9. Verse 9. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. I love this verse too because do you realize that it is still being fulfilled this morning in this very room as we recount this story? The legacy of her extravagant love for Christ is enshrined in God's word, which means that her example continues to resound and will continue to resound until he returns. As J.C. Ryle observed, quote, the deeds and titles of many a king and emperor and general are completely forgotten as if written in the sand. But the grateful act of one humble woman is known all over the globe. And even though she is nameless in Mark's gospel, we actually know who she is from John. She's Mary, Mary of Bethany, sister to Martha. You may recall that scene from Luke 10 where Martha's stressed out, serving Jesus in the kitchen. What's Mary doing? He's sitting at her feet, the, lear- the posture of a learner, the posture of a disciple. Mary's not just the sister of Martha, though. She's also the sister of Lazarus. And perhaps this dinner party, he, Lazarus was raised in Bethany. Perhaps this dinner party was a kind of celebration and tribute to Jesus for raising their brother from the dead. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, which I've quoted Several times before, Jesus through the eyes of women, Jesus through the eyes of women, she, she makes a fascinating observation. She notes that, that Mary sat at Jesus' feet when he was in Martha's home. She then fell at his feet right after her brother Lazarus died. And now she pours perfume all over his body and John tells us wipes his feet with her hair. In other words, Mary of Bethany knows her place at the feet of her Savior, where every true disciple belongs. So we shouldn't be surprised that she knows what time it is, that she's aware that death is approaching, right? We shouldn't be surprised that the one who has the wherewithal to anoint his feet is the very one who is taking the time to sit at his feet. She's one of the best listeners Jesus ever had. No wonder she has picked up what others missed. She has appraised him rightly as patient and tender, merciful and mighty, the resurrection and the life. Now, before we move on to the, to the final two verses, we, we've got to ask ourselves, If this story is about treasuring Christ, which it doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure out that's what it's about, treasuring Christ, then how practically can we as individuals and as a church do that more? And the answer is by listening to him and looking at him. There's a whole lot that could be said. More could be said. But the answer is not less than listening and looking. 
As Robert Murray McChain famously exhorted, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. This is why it's so important to be in one another's lives. Because can I just be honest with you? When I hear a quote like that, I think, that'll preach, or that'll work well on a coffee mug, or that'll, but it doesn't necessarily help me obey it. (laughs) Just rehearsing that quote doesn't necessarily make me feel like, okay, well, I'm going to start looking at Jesus 10 times more than I'm looking at myself. Maybe you're holier than me. That's just not how my heart operates. So this is why it's important to be in one another's lives. I don't just say this because I'm a pastor of a church and so I have to you know, give a little congregational application. I say this because it's a survival mechanism as a Christian. If you don't get this, you will not make it in the Christian life. It's hard, almost impossible, when you're alone to be staring at Jesus 10 times more than you're staring at yourself. But when you put yourself in the presence of other believers who are spiritually intentional, guess what they're going to do? They're going to start directing your gaze for you. Mature Christians want to talk about this. They want to talk about what they're learning in the Word. And yes, I put it like that so that if you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, I don't want to, maybe you're not a mature Christian. Mature Christians want to talk about what they're learning in the Word, what the Lord is impressing on their heart through prayer, ways they're struggling with discouragement and sin. Not completely victorious. Only one person lived the victorious Christian life. It's not us. They named the thing after him, okay? You're struggling with sin and discouragement, but you're also fighting in faith. Listen, you will not burn hot or burn long for Jesus if you're just like a solitary log removed from the fire pit. Yeah, you'll, you'll feel warm for a little, while, a little while, but eventually the cold is going to set in and you're going to be snuffed out. You need to get yourself around others who are seeing and appraising Jesus rightly so that it helps you see him as more attractive, more enamoring than your sin. Beloved, you've got to keep yourself in the furnace of Christian friendship. That's what church is for the furnace of Christian friendship so that, and so that you resolve with your friends to make it normal, not weird, normal to talk about the things of God and the beauty of Christ. Here's one simple action step. When you interact with other members after the service or throughout the week, this is going to sound really radical. You ready? Ask about church. Like corporate worship shouldn't be the one thing we never discuss after it's over. It should be the thing we default to discuss. After all, it's what we all got out of bed and got dressed and came here together to do. So make it a practice to ask people after the service or over lunch, hey, how did the Lord speak to you this morning? What did you learn? What did he teach you? How were you encouraged? How are you struggling? How can I pray for you. That should not feel super spiritual. If, it, if saying something like that feels hyper pious or super spiritual, then it's our fault as a church. That should be normal. And the normalcy can begin with you. 
Brothers and sisters, let's build a culture in which spiritually intentional questions are just expected. And we do that on Sundays. And when we do that on Sundays and throughout the week, you know what's going to happen? We're all going to find it increasingly easier to be looking at Jesus 10 times more often than we're looking at ourselves. It's a cycle. I know I'm belaboring this point. I know it probably should have been 40% shorter. But listen, listen, it's a cycle. When you speak of Christ, the more your friends will stare at him. So the more you speak of Christ, the more you and your friends will stare at Christ. And the more you together stare at him, the more you will desire to speak of them to speak of him. You see that cycle? And the reverse is also true. The less you speak of Christ, the less you and your friends will stare at him. And the less you guys together stare at him, the less you're going to want to speak of him. And the more awkward and unnatural it's going to feel when someone does. This is not some optional elective, treasuring Christ together. Treasuring Christ together and calling others in is the secret of the whole Christian life. It's why we exist as believers, why we exist as a church. Oh, RCBC, let's excel in this thing. Let's listen to his words. Let's relish his presence. Let's delight in his promises. And let's remind one another of his beauty. Pour it out. Point number two, and, and finally, paid off. Look at those final two verses in uh, 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. We're going to hear more about Judas next week as we look at the Last Supper. So why do I include these two verses in this week's sermon? Well, because Mark has crafted these first 11 verses with a specific structure. The the, the authors of the Bible were literary geniuses. There is an artistic coherence to these 11 verses. The beginning about the scheming of the chief priests and the end about their collusion with Judas are meant to frame what's in the middle. That's what a picture frame is after all. You, you don't, the point of a picture frame is not to draw attention to it, to get you to just stare at it. It's to draw attention to what's in the middle. Verses 1 and 2 about the chief priests and verses 10 and 11 about Judas are meant to frame and spotlight what's in the middle. Humanity at its worst against the foil of humanity at its best. <clears throat> in fact, I think that's why Mary is left nameless in Mark's account. It's not that Mark forgot her name. But remember I said he's reporting history with a theological edge? He's up to something artistic. He is underscoring subtly that great contrast that he's drawing. A nameless woman in a patriarchal world, a social outsider. In fact, women were not What she did was a breach of protocol. In that culture, you did not interrupt a male fellowship except unless you were serving food. What she did would have been outrageous, culturally speaking. And Mark wants us to see the contrast. This nameless woman, this social outsider who worships over against 
an intimate companion, an insider who betrays. And we don't just know from John's gospel who the woman is. We also know who voiced the first objection to what she did. John 12, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was, in, to what was put into it. As Sinclair Ferguson notes, quote, the one thing Judas could not tolerate, the one thing Judas could not tolerate was such wholehearted devotion to Jesus that had no other motive than love for him. Judas was one of those religious people who believed that their interest in Christ lies more in what he can do to further their goals than in what he wants to do to change their lives. And therefore, he could not tell the difference between grace and waste. Judas had been given a front row courtside seat to behold the mighty miracles and the tender compassion of this man. You think Mary had seen a lot about Jesus, learned a lot about Jesus. Judas had been with him in private for three consecutive years. Don't you see the lesson? Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee loyalty to Jesus. Judas saw every single miracle. Judas heard every single sermon and yet was lost. What about you? Friend, if if you've been hanging around Jesus, if you've got the proximity thing down, you hang around his people, you hang around his church, maybe for decades, but if you're not repenting of sin and trusting him to save you, then you, as of today, are just as lost as Judas. Kids and teens, I want to especially challenge you on this point. In fact, you may remember it's the very same danger we saw back in uh, chapter 6 when Jesus returns to his hometown, and he's not given a hometown hero's welcome. You remember his hometown basically yawned in his face. The the people of Nazareth had concluded that, that there's no way Jesus could be anything bigger than the little box they had put him in. They had become too familiar with him. We watched him grow up. We've seen him his whole life. We've been around him for years. Surely we have him pegged. Surely he can't be anything more than we've already decided he is. They thought they knew him, which became their greatest barrier. And I say this to you, if you're not following Jesus, I say this to all of you kids, rebellion against God can take many different forms. Rebellion against God doesn't just look like being a terrible criminal who deserves jail if they get caught. No, rebellion against God, it can look like hostile opposition like the chief priests in this passage. Rebellion can look like deceptive scheming, living a double life like Judas, as we see in this passage. But it can also look like bored, yawning indifference like we saw back in chapter 6 with the hometown crowd in Nazareth. Beware of assuming, oh, beware of assuming that just being close enough 
to the words of God, the people of God, the things of God, the activities of God, the Son of God will be sufficient. Kids, your parents' faith needs to become your personal faith. Your parents' faith needs to become your personal faith. Turn away from whatever kind of rebellion is in your heart. Turn away from hostility. Turn away from deception. Turn away from boredom and put your trust in the most valuable person in the universe. And then out of the security of knowing he lived for you and died for you and rose for you and will return to bring you home, he loves you and forgives you, you can then start to turn and trust and repent and believe every day for the rest of your life. Well, one danger, as we conclude in, 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 in studying this story, and I frankly committed this danger before, I think, as I've looked at this very familiar passage, is that we can give so much attention to Mary that we neglect or, or we overlook what she's responding to. Her lavish deed didn't just come out of nowhere. She was responding to something. Her lavish deed was a calculated response to lavish love. That's actually the most stunning takeaway. Not what she did, but what apparently Jesus had done in her life. Apparently, she felt so loved by Jesus that such a sacrifice seemed not excessive. It just seemed right. At the end of chapter 12, we saw that no gift to the Lord, not even two little pennies, is worthless. And here we see that no gift to the Lord, not even a whole year's salary, is waste. But, the, but, but this, this gift could have been given to the poor, they objected. But of course, the irony is that Mary had given it to the poor. Born in a stable placed in a feeding trough, who grew up to be an adult with no place to lay his head, utterly homeless, who had to ride a borrowed donkey, who ate his last meal in a borrowed room, who was buried in a borrowed tomb, not to mention the fact that at his death, all of his earthly possessions could have been divided among a couple Roman soldiers at the foot of his cross. But his poverty wasn't just physical. He had given up a whole nother kind of wealth. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, infinitely, eternally, spiritually rich, though for your sakes became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See, Mary broke and poured out her most expensive treasure, but the greatest sacrifice was not hers. We're not going to get to heaven and give a huge round of applause to Mary. It was the Father sending his most precious treasure to earth, the one whose body would be broken and whose blood would be poured out completely to redeem sinners like us. And the size and the scope of that gift puts Mary's into perspective. The size and scope of his gift makes Mary's look just exactly right. Three centuries ago, an English hymn writer wrote these iconic words, were the whole realm of nature mine, 
that were a present far too small. Okay, I, I realize this is 1700s. That's old-fashioned language. That's a way of saying even if you own the whole universe, it would still be too small a gift for King Jesus. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that we as individuals and as a church would rightly appraise your value, that we would see you for who you are, that we would be enamored by your beauty, by your glory, by your majesty, by your worth, and that it would make all the difference in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would live in such a way that people who are yawning at your son feel uncomfortable in our presence. But Lord, we pray also that the way we live together as a church would be so compelling and so attractive that people would want to get in on the warmth of this fellowship as we treasure Jesus Christ. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.